listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Pico Iyer is the author of Sun After Dark, The Global Soul, Abandoned, and many others. His newest book is The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. Thank you for speaking with me, Pico. I am delighted to be here. Pico, uh, the challenge for you in this book is that you've written a book whose main character, as it were, is a a religious figure, a world-renowned political figure. Setting yourself up to create that character, that's that's a big deal. Yes, especially because he's really among the best-known people on the face of the planet, which is exactly what made me think he might be among the least-known people on the planet, because I think nearly all of us have our our ideas of who the Dalai Lama is or who we want him to be. And I suppose because I've known him 33 years, I was trying to cut away at all the stereotypes we have, whether Chinese people calling him a devil or other people calling him a a god, and many of us mythicizing him. And I wanted just to engage with the human reality of this remarkable man. No, having known him for 33 years, did that make it easier or a lot, lot harder? <laughs> You're the first person to ask that question. It's a really good question because I was thinking anyone we know very, very well, it's really hard to get onto the page. And I think one of my hardest challenges would be to try to distill hundreds or thousands of pages of memorable moments and encounters and impressions I have into something as lucid and as short as possible. So I worked really hard. I think Henry David Thoreau said, give me twice as long and I'll make it twice as short. And I probably got, took five times as long with this book in order to make it as fifth, a fifth as long as it would otherwise be. So it was hard, but I suppose um, I thought, well, it's an advantage to see the whole arc of his uh, journey in and through the West. Um, and that in some ways, so many people have woken up to the Dalai Lama in the last 10 years, but I thought, well, maybe I have the small advantage of having seen him at a time when most people in the world didn't even know who or what a Dalai Lama was. I remember he'd hold press conferences in New York in the early 80s, and literally I'd say four people would show up, three of them Tibetans and one me. Um, I once, uh, in 1985, I think, I organized a lunch for a group of uh, journalists in New York to meet the Dalai Lama because I thought they would certainly gain from him and he would gain from giving his message to them. And the morning of the lunch, one of them called up and said, we don't want to come to the office just to meet a Tibetan monk, cancel it. So they stood up the Dalai Lama. Four years later, those same journalists were literally flying all the way from New York to Dharamsala just to get 10 minutes with him. But he really, I think, before the Nobel Prize in 1989, was amazingly little known. Could you talk about the first time that you met him? Your father met him when you were a baby? Yes, when I was two years old. And when I was two years old, I followed, if you can believe it, the story of his flight away from Lhasa into freedom in India. It used to crackle... um, This was pre-television days. I was in Oxford, England with my parents, and every night my father would turn on the radio and we'd hear this scratchy broadcast of this young monk fleeing across the high mountains. really sounded like a fairy tale. And as soon as he came into exile, my father, who was a professional philosopher and was very interested in Buddhism and other things, was, I think, one of the relatively few people who knew what a remarkable treasure had suddenly come out into the outside world for the first time. So he sailed back from England to India to meet 
the Dalai Lama. And then when I was 17, I met him for the first time. Uh, and I still remember, as I sit here, um, the sensation of going with my father. We took the overnight train from Delhi, as people do to this day. And then we got in a taxi in a little town called Patankot and took a four-hour taxi ride, zigzagging up the curves of the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, and in those days, it seemed you could more or less drive to the last house on the road, little yellow house, press the doorbell and go and see him. Nobody was knocking at his door then. Uh, and it was an August day, uh, and a, uh, which is usually a time of very heavy monsoons, but there was no rain that day, but very heavy mist. So as we sat in his audience room, and my father and he were talking about emptiness and compassion and all these exalted topics, um, I, as a typical 17-year-old, was just looking at everything around us, and all I could see was the mist. And it seemed as if we were completely away from the world I took to be real. There was no sign of human habitation. It felt as if these two philosophers were above the clouds talking. Uh, and uh, like any 17-year-old, I didn't want to listen to two philosophers talking. But I think some useful seed had been planted. And, um, and so as soon as the Dalai Lama started to come to America five years later, I always went to hear him and, and began to uh, extend and advance that initial acquaintance. As you got to know him, you yourself changed. Could you talk about how your journey within your life was mm. affected by these kind of like uh, satellite contact <laughs> points with, with, with the Dalai Lama? Yes, it, you're, uh, that's a very good way of putting it. And they've been cumulative. And I think it's only the I spent the last five years doing nothing day in, day out for Six, 1800 days but think about him and read and reread everything he says and reread my transcripts of our talks together and I think it's in that time that I've really noticed what a change he's made I think one thing I've learned from him is that you can be passionately pro-Tibetan without being anti-Chinese and I think that can be extended in any way, that you can support the Democratic Party, but there's no need to demonize or antagonize the Republican Party, which is a, a wonderful principle about moving beyond the old divisions and polarities that we're hearing now at last from one of our presidential candidates. Um, I've realized that suffering is not the same as unhappiness. Suffering in a sense of loss and impermanence is part of the world, but unhappiness is just the response we can choose or not choose to bring to it. Uh, and so even in the face of difficulty, and the Dalai Lama has had more difficulty than anyone, that isn't a prescription for sadness or, or, or self-pity. And I was just actually calling my longtime partner in Japan a few days ago on the phone and telling her, the more I think about it, I can't get over how much, just in my everyday reactions with my mother, with my loved ones, with bosses and, and, and colleagues and reviewers, how being around the Dalai Lama and just seeing how he takes everything in and always looks for the opportunity in any situation um, has really helped me. I was thinking the other day, let's say somebody writes a terrible review of my new book. Maybe 10 years ago, I would have thought, oh, how could he do that? I worked so hard for five years. And now I would think, well, poor guy, he's just like me. He's a writer trying his, you know, working really hard to support his family. He's doing his best. He's giving an objective response to the rest of the world about his dissatisfaction with this book. He's just being an honest person. And, um, and, and if I feel any adversity towards him, I'm only making my life a lot worse and perhaps making his life worse. Um, what, what's the virtue of that needless anger? Your response is really fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to ask you about the, the transcripts you kept. As you uh, created these through the years, did you think, well, someday I'm going to use this, I'm going to write this down? Did you tape this stuff? Did you transcribe tapes? That's a lot of work. 
It is. And I must say, I didn't by any means transcribe all my conversations with him. And I've always had, I suppose, a dual relationship with him, which sounds ambiguous, but I think he knows and I know how to respect the divisions, which is to say, sometimes I go to him just as a regular person who's known him for a long time and wants to talk. And then we have what's called an audience. And sometimes I go to him in my capacity principally as a writer for Time magazine. And then I have an official interview, which is taped, which I tape. um, uh, And I go there as a journalist. And I think when I've been a journalist, uh, I've tried very hard, as I have in this book, to be objective, because I think there's no virtue and there's no help to him or to any reader just to talk about how wonderful he is. So I try to bring very searching challenges to him. But that's a long way of saying that of all the many times I've talked to him, it's only a small number of times have I taken a, a, a tape recorder and do I have conversations to transcribe. That's only when I go there specifically to write an article. So the rest is just stuff that stayed in my mind, and it has stayed in my mind for 20 or 30 years, many of those occasions. One thing that I find most interesting uh, about the Dalai Lama is his approach to science Mm. and religion. And I find it really heartening. Yes. He's a complete empiricist. And especially when he talks to a large general Western non-Buddhist audience, all he stresses is reason, which, of course, is exactly what the Buddha stressed. And in fact, the last time I saw him, I was traveling across Japan with him for a whole week last November, five months ago. Uh, And at one point, um, a journalist came onto the bullet train on which we were riding, going to Yokohama, and asked him, as many a journalist might, uh, Your Holiness, if you had a magic wand, what would you do to solve the situation in the Middle East, uh, in Israel and Palestine? And he looked at the man with his friendly directness and said, silly question. <laughs> um, he's, and more or less said, you know, if I had a magic wand, I'd solve the situation in Tibet. I'd find a cure for cancer. I'd bring universal peace. I, I'd get rid of this sore throat that's bothering me right now. And then apropos of that, he said, the Buddha and the main Buddhist philosophers I all think of as scientists. And I think of the Dalai Lama in my book. I treat him as a doctor who essentially is traveling around the world trying to see if there's anything wrong with you or me or anyone he happens to meet and offering a diagnosis. Um, but entirely on the basis of research. You know, his favorite uh, ad- uh, adjectives are logical and realistic, and I think his favorite verbs are explore, investigate, research, and analyze. And so when he goes around the world, I really think he's a scientist almost carrying a magnifying glass to look at reality, to see what it consists of, and to see what can be done with it. And as you say, that's very striking. He's the rare religious figure who says that if scientific discoveries disprove anything in Buddhism, throw out that part of Buddhism. Any of the Buddha's words uh, must hold up to empirical research, and if they don't, he'll get rid of them. And certain Tibetan tankas, for example, old ancient tankas, show the sun and moon at equidistance from the earth. And the Dalai Lama said to me, well, I, I actually don't want to, I don't use those tankas anymore because they're not scientifically valid. Um, some people may find use for them, but anything that's scientifically invalid, uh, I, I don't think ha- um, has any virtue. And I think that's one of the things that's allowed him to be so ecumenical and to spend so much of his time talking to Catholics, Muslims, atheists, and, and scientists who may call themselves atheists and to cut away those divisions. Uh- when we're talking about the Dalai Lama, we're talking about, uh, as you said, one of the highest profile people on the planet at this yes. moment. Could you talk about his struggles to keep his humanity? I mean, it must be really tough. 
Yes, that's a wonderful question. And, and in some sense, he has no problem uh, keeping his humanity. It's just we who have the problem, want, wanting to make him something more or other than a human. And um, just before the two big movies came out uh, in 1997 about his life, Kundun and Seven Years in Tibet, I went to Dharamsala and I talked to him afternoon after afternoon while he was on retreat, especially about this whole issue of celebrity. And he said with some bewilderment, well, some people around the world actually think of me as a celebrity. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't get over that. Uh, and he said, well, the only thing, I can't do anything about the things that people project on me. Uh, Beijing is calling me a jackal in monk's robes. Other people are calling me a superhuman, like the, the journalist in the train I was just alluding to. And he said, well, that's got to do with them. There's nothing I can do against that, uh, against that or about that. All I can do is try to make sure that my motivations are pure and to conduct myself as, as honestly as I can. And that's part um, that I can, can control. And I will tell you that the I think the fiercest he's ever been with me was once 20 years ago, I wrote a piece for Time magazine introducing their readers to the Dalai Lama. This was before he was well known. And in a couple of places in my article, um, I referred to him as a living Buddha or a God King. And the next time I saw him in Dharamsala, which is quite a few years later, we were talking about something else, and I asked him about how Buddhism would adapt to the changing world, and he gave me a very good answer. And suddenly this wild gleam came to his eye, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, some people actually refer to me as a living Buddha. That's completely wrong. That's a terrible mistranslation. The, the real meaning of Dalai Lama has no, none of those associations or implications. And he said again and again, you know, there's, uh, these Westerners who write about living Buddha, that's totally wrong. And I realized there was a very fundamental distortion of um, the, his philosophy because the Buddha himself, his main claim was that he wasn't bringing revelation, he wasn't sent from heaven, he was just a human doing what any human can do if, he can, if we want to apply ourselves. And the, the importance of the Dalai Lama coming to visit Santa Cruz, say, is not that the Dalai Lama is compassionate and clear-sighted, though I think he is, but he's telling us any one of us could be that compassionate and clear-sighted too if we want to activate um, that potential. So anyway, he, he explained at great length with quite a lot of intensity um, the, the, the falsity of using this term living Buddha and I wrote another article for Time magazine taking in these conversations and of course when the, when the article came out I opened the magazine and there was the title The God in Exile uh, and to me it was just a small story that he has to deal with all the time that the world doesn't want to let go of this notion the fairy tale notion that he's a god and he al always insists um, on his humanness and he's such a human person I think that's a large part of his power and charisma that were he in in this room right now, he would be able to make you and me forget that he's a monk, forget that he's a head of state, forget that he's a Buddhist or a Tibetan, and just make human contact and ask you, you know, how's your life, and tell you how his life is, and, and acknowledge that sometimes he gets sad and sometimes he gets impatient when his luggage doesn't arrive in his room uh, on time after a long flight, and that um, the very essence of his message, as I see it, is his humanness and his humanity. Um, and of course, uh, so the one thing that every teacher has always been powerless against is his students in some ways. And when we talk about that, um, I think even the Buddha was in that position uh, because the Buddha famously uh, acquired disciples and students and he always told them, please don't make a personality cult around somebody who's talking about the flimsiness of personality. And he said, don't make a religion, don't make a monument, don't make a fixed doctrine around me. And actually, as I understand it, for 500 years after the Buddha's death, that was more or less honored. And people never represented the Buddha. When they represented him, they only showed a pair of footsteps or a tree or a wheel um, or, uh, or even an empty throne. But they understood that 
the, the personality would get in the way of the principles he was speaking for. But then Buddhism became so popular that it reached the edges of Europe and the Greek statue carvers or statue makers began um, to work with its uh, iconography and suddenly they began producing Buddha figures who looked in fact very similar to Apollo and suddenly the Buddha had become a statue that now we see everywhere. So it took 500 years in the Buddha's time and it's taken probably five minutes in the Dalai Lama's time. It's the same process. One of the things that I find interesting, and you mentioned this in the book, is the sense of humor uh, of the Dalai Lama, and that's inherent in the Buddhist uh, beliefs. Yes, um, which I take to be another aspect of that realism, another kind of irreverence. Uh, he doesn't, you know, Buddhism doesn't traffic in notions necessarily of of heavens and 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 gods. And I mean, they have their own intricate system of deities, but all of that is somewhat extraneous to the core, having to do with compassion and, and interdependence. And I think with the Dalai Lama, um, often what he's laughing at is the silliness of human beings, including himself. Um, but certainly, you know, for example, I remember once um, he was talking about Tibetans who were so determined to um, to keep their culture that even in the heat of India, they would wear very, very, very heavy Tibetan clothes that are made for the 12,000-foot plateau of Tibet. And he was saying, well, that's that's probably not what we need to keep alive Tibet. It's something more fundamental. Um, he, he never actually says or anything against his fellow Tibetans, but I think he's amused at the unrealistic notions that some of us um, have, that, um, that I see him as a very down-to-earth figure. And something that's not down-to-earth will strike him as maybe um, beside the point, as it were. One of the, the things that you talk about in this book quite a bit is the uh, tendency to turn anything from Tibet into a kind of a stand-in for what we perceive to be the god-king of the Dalai Lama. Yes, it's exactly what, what you and I were just talking about with our wish to romanticize or create some myth out of the Dalai Lama seems to be paralleled by our wish to create Shangri-La out of Tibet. Uh, and I've found that almost every Tibetan I meet, whether it's the Dalai Lama or one of the ever more vocal dissidents who's speaking for radical action and even violent action against China, who lives in Dharamsala near the Dalai Lama, Either side, whoever you talk to, their first comment is, I'm not from Shangri-La. And Tibet has suffered desperately because we mythicize it. Uh, when Mao Zedong sent his troops in in 1949, Tibet appealed to Britain and to India because they were the, its longtime friends. And Britain and India neither rallied to its help and neither would allow Tibet's cause to be heard in, at the United Nations. And I think that's partly because all of us, then and even to this day can say, well, Tibet's a faraway country of enlightened monks and it doesn't need our help. Uh, and by calling it Shangri-La, we're in some ways um, shrink, shirking from the real responsibility of uh, caring for and looking out for um, its suffering people who are just regular human beings and monks in desperate, desperate conditions. Uh, so I think Tibet has, has suffered a lot at the hands of mythicization, as it were. Uh, and uh, there's a lot in the book, as you know, of uh, the Dalai Lama's younger brother, who is also a Rinpoche, a high incarnate Lama. And he, many years ago, told me about what he calls the Shangri-La syndrome, whereby many of us in, in this part of the world look to all Tibetans as a source of enlightenment, and many Tibetans, understandably, are eager to play up to those expectations. Uh, and that, when I say that, that's not to... Um, to be easily irreverent or flip about Tibet, because I think some of the most impressive, charismatic, and 
practical, rigorous thinkers I've ever met are Tibetans. It's more to say that I, I want to question my own ideas about Tibet. Um, and in this book, there's a whole chapter about projection. And the reason I put that in was to say, well, here I am, Pico Iyer, writing a book about the Dalai Lama. And I can't claim that this is a book about the Dalai Lama, objectively seen. This is just my projection. And so I'm as guilty of all of this as everyone else. Uh, you know, My projection may take a different form than that of Shangri-La. But I know that um, the real person is much more complex and, and nuanced and many-sided than even the idea that I have of him in my head. He also is a single man who who represents, as, as you rightly state, an entire nation, an entire people. Yes. A- and that's got to be a problem. It is. It's a problem for everyone. And he, as well as the younger Tibetans who are impatient with his policy of forbearance and tolerance towards the Chinese, they both say exactly the same thing, which is the Dalai Lama is our greatest asset in some ways, but that fact is our greatest weakness, that that for so long um, Tibetans have been in the habit of deferring to the Dalai Lama. And it's interesting, again, as soon as he arrived in exile in 1959, one of the first things he did was to write a new constitution for a democratic Tibet, and he set up a democratically elected prime minister and parliament and cabinet, and his impulse was to tell all the Tibetans, please take the power into your own hands. And that's a Buddhist principle. Don't listen to me. Listen to yourselves. Seek no refuge but yourself, as, as the Buddha said. But of course, the Tibetans, in the same way as we in the West have sometimes been reluctant to take him as a human being, um, many people in Tibet, I think very understandably, have said, well, you're such a wise man. Please, will you continue making the decisions for us? So he's been in a strange position of trying to impose democracy on his people. Uh, and he once said to me very engagingly that he wished he could um, delegate responsibility. But he said, well, if I went around the world and my cabinet ministers were offering to give lectures in San Francisco or Santa Cruz. Nobody will come, so it has to be me. And he says in many, there are many aspects in terms of describing the Tibetan situation uh, and talking to Tibet's passionate supporters around the world where the people around him are just as qualified as he is. But one way or another, they're too diffident to take the responsibility and we're too reluctant to hear them. So yes, it all falls on the Dalai Lama, which makes for great pressures given that he's a mortal man who's 72 in exile and is not going to be with us forever. He's a mortal man. He's 72. He's in exile. But he was found by monks mm. at the age of two Yes, with star signs and rainbows. Yes, This is not your average mortal man. <laughs> this is a man who, who deals with entities that most yes. of us don't deal with. Yes. Yes. And you're at, that's a very, very well said. And uh, one of the uh, one of the most important things that I should say now is I've been stressing his rational, scientific, empirical side. And of course, among his community and with his monks, there's a very, very different side that um, is full of uh, of deities and, and tankas and rites. And uh, he has he div- he gets a lot of his counsel from uh, an oracle who channels the voice of a deity to the Dalai Lama. In fact, it was that oracle who told the Dalai Lama uh, in March 1959, you have to flee your your um, palace tonight and go towards India. And it was the oracle who, in fact, laid out the route for him to take when he was fleeing from Lhasa. So absolutely right. And I think I have a whole chapter in this book at the very center, and it has to be at the center because it's at the center of his life called The Mystery, which is about all those non-rational, post-rational, esoteric 
things that are integral to his practice, but that an outsider like me can't presume to talk about. So my feeling is that when he's within the Tibetan community or the Buddhist community, of course, he's going deep into these practices, meditation techniques, visualization techniques, and a whole cosmology with its many, many deities that is at the center of Tibetan Buddhism. But when he's talking to non-Buddhists and to the larger world and to people like me, he's got this great gift like a doctor for distilling his specialized knowledge into very lucid, ecumenical, universal precepts that any one of us can understand. So my position was that I, as a typical lay ignoramus journalist, could understand him when he's offering general talks to big audiences around the world. But couldn't presume to, to talk much about what's going on in that private practice where you have to be, I think, a very serious, committed student of uh, Tibetan Buddhism and, and, and perhaps even a monk and a philosopher to begin to understand. But you're right, there's, there's so much there that is beyond the rational, and uh, as, as in any religion. Um, so I think he, in his mind, makes a very clear distinction between global ethics, as he calls it, which apply to anyone, whether you have a religion or not, and apply to all the world, uh, regardless of your background, and the very specific charged body of Tibetan Buddhism, and particularly his school, the Geluk school, uh, which is swarming, as their tankas show, with forces that outsiders find it hard to understand. He's also more than the head of this religion. He's also, he's a monk. He is a monk. And simple. He is a simple monk, um, and he's taken 253 vows, as every Buddhist monk does, and extra vows, I think, because he's a Dalai Lama. And it's easy, he's so, he's so good at making immediate, direct human contact that I think many of us forget um, that he is a monk. He, as you know, when he comes to this country, people often ask him about their sexual or romantic problems. And that's one time when he throws back his head in laughter and says, why are you asking me? I'm a celibate monk. I'm the last person to be able to shed any light on these questions. You know much more about it. Um, than I do. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, uh, one of the things I found in the five years of researching this book was that there's so much that he says that, especially in English, sounds simple almost to the point of simplistic. And I found that 20 years ago, when I would hear him, a lot of his sentences would go in one ear and go out the other because they're so transparent and they're so down to earth. But the more I looked into them, the more I found how much lies behind each sentence. So, for example, you mentioned how he always calls himself a simple Buddhist monk. And that almost seems self-evident to us and just a sign of modesty but recently I explored um, those three words and I found out that for him they represent very very precise meaning because he says that when he has dreams in his dreams he, he sees himself as a monk but he never sees himself as a Dalai Lama and in his faint intimations of past lives, he also is aware of some long-standing monastic commitment, but is much less aware of the Dalai Lama part of his life. And the most important thing he stresses is that anyone at any time could take away the Dalai Lama designation and name and robes from him, but no one can take away his monastic commitment except himself. And, and finally, I found that when the 13th Dalai Lama a hundred years ago, was asked, who are you, what are you? He said, a simple Buddhist monk. So in fact, when the Dalai Lama, this current Dalai Lama, says he's a simple Buddhist monk, it's not an, an evasion and it's not as simple as it seems, but it is like everything, it comes out of this empirical research. He has thought out every aspect and that's why he's chosen those words. You, you talk about what I, something I really like, that he has what he calls, or you call the, an I don't know style of optimism. I, I really love that, that idea. <laughs> yes. 
And maybe I would say an I, I don't know style of realism. I mean, he is an optimist because he believes in the Buddhist way of thinking ult- the ultimate end is transformation. Everybody one by one over the millennia will transform, will wake up to their better selves or the potential of the Buddha inside them. So he's an optimist in that sense, but he's a realist in the day-to-day sense. Um, but he has a he has a wonderful habit of, of acknowledging that he he doesn't know what's, what's coming next. And I think you're right. That is part of the center of why he doesn't give up. Because many people will say to him, in the course of your life, uh, Tibet has been almost wiped out from the map. You've extended the hand of friendship. And China has only cracked down on Tibet harder and harder. You know, you've lost. Or you, you, everything you've done has been a failure. They could easily say, and, and some, some people have been saying that, especially in recent weeks. And he, I think, genuinely, whatever is happening, says... We don't know what will happen tomorrow. Uh, And one reason that he can say it is, as you know from the book, two of his closest friends and colleagues and champions are Desmond Tutu and Vaclav Havel. And Vaclav Havel uh, was one day in um, prison. Eight weeks later, out of nowhere, he was unanimously selected uh, president of Czechoslovakia. Desmond Tutu was one day woke up uh, under the shadow of, of apartheid in South Africa, and the next day, more or less, woke up and apartheid was gone. And although things are in some ways more difficult than ever before in, in South Africa, the Dalai Lama has seen over the course of his 67 years of leadership so many unimaginable things happen. He was in Berlin as the wall was coming down. And so he has this huge collection of memories, this data bank from being a leader longer than anyone else on the planet of how whatever we say on January 1st is made a mockery of by February 1st or by July 1st or whatever, that there's no way any human can um, can know what is coming. All we can do, I think he would say, is prepare ourselves and act with as much clarity and integrity as possible so that when suddenly circumstances switch over, we are ready to make the most of the new opportunities. Because impermanence is, of course, probably the core concept in Buddhism. Nothing lasts. Uh, and so whatever we think is so fixed now, such as China controlling Tibet, that won't go on forever. As a writer, you've got 1,500 pages, 3,000 pages of stuff to put together to yes. put this book. Could you talk about the process of assembling this book and writing it and, and creating that character and structuring it? Yes. Um, it was it was very, very difficult. And that's why I spent longer on this book than on any of my other books by a, by a big factor, even though many of my other books are longer than this one. Uh, and I think the first thing I decided was to look at nine different aspects of the Dalai Lama to try to to divide his life into the globalist, the politician, the philosopher, the mystic, the icon, and, and, and so on. But it was also important to me, because it's so central to his life, that none of those would be discreet, that in fact his monastic part is essential to his work as a, as, as a politician, and that his philosophical ideas are central to his interest in globalism and interdependence. And so each one of the chapters should in some ways contain all the other pieces too, because that's exactly how his, his, his life works. And I worked very hard to try try to give a kind of fluid sense, that to go with that sense of Buddhism I think of as not a structure but a, a river that's constantly changing and going around the next corner or bend towards I don't know what, I mean going back to that I don't know sense. Um, but it's always about impermanence and fluidity and, and the constancy of change. And I tried to um, get that idea into the, into the heart of this book. And I took great pains, for example, with small things like the title. Um, the Open Road actually comes from D.H. Lawrence writing 
writing about Walt Whitman. And the open road is Walt Whitman's uh, definition of how democracy works. Soul meets soul on the open road. And I love the open road partly because, like the river, it's always going around bends and you don't know what's coming next. It's always in movement, uh, as is the Dalai Lama and as is Buddhism and as are most of our lives. I like the fact that it's about democracy and my image of the Dalai Lama is almost him walking along a path and different people come along his way. Sometimes one is the Pope, the next is President Bush, the next is a backpacker. Each one of them he deals as a human who has something to offer him and to whom he may have something to offer. He keeps on walking. Um, he doesn't know necessarily what's going to come next. But I also like the... F I wanted to uh, take the title from an American poet and an English novelist to say that, at least in this book, the ideas that the Dalai Lama is offering to us are not far away or foreign, and they don't belong to this... Uh, remote culture set behind the highest mountains on earth. Um, he is steeped in Buddhism, and that's what he shares with fellow Buddhists. But when he comes to the West, what he's offering are things that any one of us uh, can make use of. And in fact, you know, the epigraphs to this book come from Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk, from a contemporary Chinese journalist, from Aldous Huxley, and especially from Thoreau and Emerson. And what I was trying to do with all of that was to remind us that all these ideas surround us every day. They're part, of, in some ways, of the fabric of America. And and they're here in our backyard if we want to act on them. We don't need, have to turn to Tibet or Tibetan Buddhism for them or to the Dalai Lama for them. But he is in some ways bringing us back home and bringing back to us these ideas that in fact are, are in um, our own tradition. I've been speaking with Pico Iyer. His new book is The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. Thank you for joining me, Pico. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.